are continuing on in the book of Genesis this evening, coming very close uh, towards the end, chapter 49 of 50 chapters. Uh, so Jeff is going to come and speak to us from this passage later on, but we're just going to read these verses together now. So Genesis 49, beginning to read at verse 1. This is the word of the Lord. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I may tell you what shall happen to you in days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships and his border shall be at Sidon. Issachar is a strong donkey, crouching between the sheepfolds. He saw that the resting place was good and that the land was pleasant. So he bowed his shoulder to bear and became a servant at forced labor. Dan shall judge his people as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heels so that his rider falls backwards. I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Raiders shall raid Gad, but he shall raid at their heels. Asher's food shall be rich, and he shall yield royal delicacies. Naphtali is a doe let loose that bears beautiful fawns. Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him and harassed him severely. Yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the almighty who will bless you, with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and of the womb, Blessings of your Father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who was set apart from his brothers. Benjamin is a ravenous wolf, in the morning devouring the prey and at evening dividing the spoil. All these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre, 
in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. There I have buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. Then Jacob finished commanding his sons. He drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Well, uh, if you were here last week, you'll know that we said you can poke the person beside you because it was warm. Well, I think tonight it's even warmer, so you you may well need to do that. And uh, if you need to shed a layer, that's also fine, depending on how many layers you've you've came with, obviously. Um, And we are going to jump into Genesis 49. Um, One of the things about being an assistant minister is you have to... Uh, have conversations with the real minister, uh, and really review how you're getting on. And so often, Al has uh, those conversations with me. I'm not really supposed to, f- I don't really know if you're supposed to share these. Um, <laughs> if, you're not supposed to, <laughs> if you're not supposed to share these, then this may well be my last time preaching. But <laughs> one of the things that he said one day was, um, we were talking through how, how you know, we have different styles in preaching, and um, I'm probably not breaking any confidence to say that you, you probably know Al's style, uh, being here 30 years. Often it's points, often three points. And he said, Jeff, I've noticed recently that some of your, some of your sermons are pointless. <laughs> and um, I was hoping he hadn't put that on my written review. But I'm giving you a warning this evening. Rather than going home with points, I want you to go home with a picture. Not points, but a picture. And I want you to go home with a with a, a family portrait that is painted for us by Jacob. Only this is a future family portrait. It's a future family portrait which should help us live today and have certainty of what's to come. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we spend time in his word. Father, this evening we come to almost the end of Genesis, and we know that you have something to say to us in this chapter. And so, Lord, on a night where we might feel like the weather is close and sticky, and we might be uncomfortable, we might be easily distracted, Lord, we pray that you would draw closer, and that your word and the applications from your word would stick in our minds that we wouldn't leave and forget, but that we would leave changed, transformed by your word and your spirit working together. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you were here last week, then you'll know that um, we looked at Genesis 48, and we find ourselves learning some lessons from an old man who is about to die. He had modeled to us, focusing our minds on the promises of God the character of God, and the blessings of God as we approach death. And yet, we get to 49, and Jacob still hasn't died. He hasn't died, at least at the start of 49. He only dies as we reach the end of the chapter. And so what does he have to say in the interim period? Knowing that he's going to die as we reach the end of the chapter, what is it that he wants to leave with his children? One of the things that becomes 
oh so precious after someone in our families or a close friend passes away. It's photos of them, isn't it? We love to go through the photos and we love to think back to the memories that they bring to our minds. And those are, are so precious, aren't they? Well, in the days of Jacob, there was no photos. Kodak had not been invented yet. But here, in this last chapter leading up to its death, it's almost as if Jacob gives his family a, a sketch, a sketch of a family portrait, one that they can look back to and focus on and go over again and again and again, even after he has gone. Now, this is no ordinary sketch. This is a unique picture that he sketches in the minds of of all of the hearers, his sons, and also all of those who have heard this since. And it's a picture that points back to something about the sons, but it's also a prophetic picture, a picture that tells us something of what is to come. So imagine the picture this evening. Try and picture this in your head as we, as we work our way through. It's a picture of, of Jacob's sons. And I want you to imagine for a moment that it, the picture of Jacob's sons really comes in the style of a caricature, okay? Uh, and, uh, and the caricature of, of each of the sons represents the son, but also the tribe uh, that goes along with them. Now, you know what a caricature is, uh, a cartoon picture where the emphasis is, is given to distinct features, uh, and the setting or the background is always really important. The clothes that they wear, well, that's always really important. The thing that might be in their hand, that's really important because it tells us something about the person, maybe something significant that they were involved in or had sought to do, whether it's good or whether it's bad. Now, I was going to put a few examples uh, of caricatures on the screen, but basically, most of them are quite offensive, and uh, I realized that I was going to offend someone in the room, so I've opted against that idea. But as we go through the, the blessings that are given to Jacob's sons, maybe it's helpful to kind of have in your head the family portrait. The family portrait. It doesn't just emphasize what we know about the sons already, what we know to date, but it also has this prophetic side, a prophetic side where it points to key things that we need to know about the son in focus and the tribe in which they represent into the future. And hopefully, as this picture is painted for us in this chapter, we will realize that this is one of those portraits that we should go back to again and again and again. It's one of those portraits that we should keep in our memories because the picture that's given in these blessings has something to say to us. It's got something to say to us about how we live today and the sure and certain hope for the believer in the future. Look with me at uh, verse one. Then Jacob called his sons and said, gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen. O sons of Jacob, listen to Israel, your father. I want you to picture the scene. Jacob is about to die. He brings all of his family in close around him beside the bedside. And now this is a really special thing to get to do if you, if you get the chance with those closest to you. And he says to them, he says to them, listen up. Listen up to what I'm about to tell you. And isn't that what you do? If you were there, if you were the sons, you would listen up, wouldn't you? With great intent. Now, Jacob was, was speaking at this stage as a prophet directed by God. These uh, blessings that he, that he utters at this point, they're, they're not just dying wishes or, or prayers. These were blessings. These were proclamations of what God was going to do with his people. 
So, so although they're words, uh, and they really are Jacob's words, they're also God's words. God's words. So let's have a look at, at, at some of these sons. And we'll start with Reuben, the firstborn. Verse three, Reuben, you're my firstborn, my might and the first fruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And as you're Reuben and you listen on, you think, oh boy, this is sounding pretty good. This is off to a good start, Dad. Thanks so much. Can you imagine standing there? It's a grand intro and you think, well, where is it going to go from here? Where's it going to go? And then you read verse four. You hear this. If you're Reuben, unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it, he went up to my couch. After what seems like such a bright start, such potential, and then the carpet is pulled from under his feet. Unstable as water. It's not what you want to hear, is it? It's not a compliment. You want to be told you're solid as a rock, that's what you want to hear. Not unstable as water. So this image of water pictures weakness, doesn't it? It's the opposite of a rock. And you shall not have preeminence. The surpassing greatness that could have been yours will no longer come to pass. And there was good reason for it, wasn't there? Actions have consequences. That's what we see, isn't it? Reuben had defiled his father's bed. We read about that back in, in Genesis 35, verse 22. What had happened, Rachel had died, and then the writer includes this little verse, 35, 22, while Israel lived in that land, Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now, at the time, there was little comment made. It just went on to the next thing, and we were kind of left thinking, whoa, what happened there? This was horrific. It was horrendous, wasn't it? But there was no commentary made at the time, but we were told that Israel heard. Israel heard. Jacob had heard it, and Jacob had not forgotten. He had not forgotten the wicked action of his firstborn, and sin has consequences. Isn't that what we see? So as we look at the blessing, there is little favor received. Little favor received. And as you read on through the history of Israel, he has few descendants, and he has no one really of note. No prophet, no priest, no king. You can kind of imagine that, a painting sketched out of Reuben, can't you? Big and strong and, and all of the attributes that might look impressive, might look like there's great potential there. And yet in the picture, you'd know it in the background, what would he be sitting on the edge of? His father's bed. A sinful action that he would never be able to get away from the damage caused. The deed itself was summarized back in chapter 35 that a really short sentence, just this little snappy bit. And perhaps its shortness and its briefness is there to remind us of just how quickly and easily we can fall into such a sin. And although if the, the sin is confessed to God, then it does not keep us from being part of God's family. It does not mean that it cannot have major, major consequences for you, for your family, for those around you, and even those who come after you, even after this life on earth for you has passed, it can still have a lingering and lasting effect. And isn't that what we see in Reuben's life? This one illicit sexual act impacts the rest of his family and his family's life and generations to come after him. This one action 
So I wonder this evening, do you see the warning? Do you see the warning? The warning to flee from sin, to flee from it. Don't entertain sin, because one fleeting sinful action can wreak havoc, not just for you, but for generations. Jacob next goes on to bless Simon, Simeon, and Levi. Verse 5, look with me. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory be not joined to their company, for in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. The sin of Reuben had not been forgotten, and nor had the sin of Simeon and Levi. Now here it's referring back to what happened in Genesis 34. I wonder, do you remember what happened there? Uh, Their sister had been raped. Their father Jacob had really failed to step in and provide the leadership that was required within the family. He didn't bring justice for the wrong that had been done to his daughter. And so the two brothers, they took it into their own hands, didn't they? What had happened? Well, Jacob had made this deal with the men of Shechem, and they had got circumcised, so that they were entering into this, uh, this time where they'd, they'd work much closer together. An agreement had been made. All of the meals in the city of Shechem had been circumcised. And while all of the meals had been circumcised and were still tender as a result of the circumcision, what happens? Simeon and Levi took their swords, and they killed all the meals of the city. All the meals of the city. Oh yes, the the rape of their sister was a wicked, wicked act, and it needed appropriate punishment, absolutely. But to go into the city and slay every meal, this was not justice. This was wicked and evil. It was a massacre. Uh, And notice in verse 5, Simeon and Levi are described as brothers. Maybe you heard that, you thought, well, that's a bit strange. Are all the sons of Jacob not brothers? Well, why does he... Why does he include this? Well, I think what Jacob is saying here is, is more than that. He's saying these brothers are like, they're like peas in a pod. They come together. They are allies. They are two violent men. They are, they are a band of brothers in the worst possible sense. The worst possible sense. They are two violent men. And so picture it in your mind. Two violent men, bloodthirsty, standing with swords. So rather than blessing, we see cursing in verse 7, don't we? And they will be divided and scattered in the land. That's what happens. Both Simeon's tribe and Levi's tribe are dispersed among the tribes. But even here, even here we see God's redemptive hands because God redeems the the, the curse of verse 7 for the tribe of Levi. Yes, they will be scattered. Maybe you know how they'll be scattered. They will be scattered as priests, as priests. And so even here, we have a little glimmer, don't we? A little glimmer of grace and mercy, a reminder that our stories are never beyond redemption. The side of eternity. Then there is the next blessing that's given to Judah. Now we need to look and compare the, the length of this one to the ones who have gone before. Look, it runs from verse eight right through to verse 12. Do you see that huge big chunk of text? Starts with verse 8, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be in the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. 
Here's a picture of a man who's going to be praised, isn't it? He would bring his attacking armies under control. Boys and girls, oh, I wonder if you ever um, are having a wrestling match maybe with a brother or a sister or something, and you, know, you get them by the neck and you, you know, get them down, and you've, you've got control of them, haven't you? Well, isn't that what this picture is? And isn't that what we see that will come from this tribe as kings bow down before David, the descendant of Judah? Verse 9, Judah is a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched like a lioness who dares rouse him. A lion, what's that a symbol of? It's a, a symbol of power and strength, isn't it? Power and strength and courage. And in time, this little lion would, cub would grow up to be just that, as warriors like King David and Solomon would come from the tribe of Judah. But it's not just warriors like David and Solomon who would come. No, ultimately, this is a, a future blessing that culminates in Christ Jesus himself, isn't it? This morning we were talking about how the Old Testament points to Jesus. Well, here's one of them, isn't it? Jesus is the Lion of Judah. Isn't that the language of Revelation 5? And isn't that why passages like Matthew chapter 1 trace out the ancestry of Jesus and they, they highlight the fact that he is a descendant of the tribe of Judah? Look at verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. And here that imagery keeps pointing us to Christ again and again, doesn't it? Spot all that royal language. Who is it that holds a scepter? Well, it's a king, isn't it? That's who holds a scepter. And this little bit that is translated in the ESV, until tribute comes to him, it's, it's quite difficult language to understand, isn't it? The NIV uh, translates it, until it comes to whom it belongs. In other words, we get a sense in which it's saying, there is a king who will one day come through the line of Judah, who once he rules, once he, once he picks up the scepter, he will not put it down. He will not put it down. Well, isn't this pointing to the risen King Jesus? Isn't that who it's pointing to? And so today he, he rules and he reigns. And yet, just as we talked about last, last week, there's a, a sense of a now and a not yet. At the end of verse 10, we see that there's something that's still to come. One day, everyone will be obedient to him. But that is not yet. That is not yet. But we can be sure that just as the other parts of this future family picture have come to pass, so too will this part. So too will this part. Verse 11, binding his fool to the vine and his donkey colt to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. We don't have time this evening to to work through every aspect here in detail. But what is this future picture that is given as Jacob blesses Judah? Well, this kingly figure, he, he strangely rides on a donkey. That's unusual for a king, isn't it? wonder, boys and girls, if you're here, can you think of a, a king who rode on a donkey? Any ideas as to who that might be? Jesus, isn't it? And can you uh, picture this? Uh, Jesus, he, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. A king who rides on a donkey. 
But what will this place be like in which he rules? Well, the imagery here is of lavish provision, isn't it? Do you spot that? I mean, who ties their donkey to a vine where the donkey's going to eat all the grapes? I mean, you only do such a thing if, if you have endless, endless grapes. And so you're happy to feed the donkey with your choice grapes. Or look at how he washes his clothes. I wonder if you spot that. He washes his garments in wine. I mean, wine in the Bible is a, a sign of wealth, isn't it? If you're struggling to make ends meet, what do you cut out at dinner time? Probably the glass of wine. It's the expensive part that comes alongside it. And if, you, if you're struggling, well, that's what you cut. And here, this future king, he must rule in a land where there is such plenty that the idea of filling the bath with wine to wash his clothes well, he might as well. Why not? There's plenty of abundance. Plenty of abundance. In verse 12, well, it's a picture of health and beauty, isn't it? So if the caricature has been sketched in your mind, you might picture Judah with a scepter and a donkey eating away at some grapes with a great big bath in behind full of wine. It's a picture of what was to come in the land of Judah, isn't it? And again, this is a picture that is, well, it still has a not yet aspect to it. This land of plenty and abundance is not yet where we are at. But for God's people, well, they know that this is a picture of the new creation. This is a picture of what's to come. This is a picture of the new heavens and the new earth. When God's people will feast together and there will be great provision for all of God's people. There will be no sickness. Everyone there will be there in their glorified bodies, and they will be the picture of health and beauty. What a day. What a day. But let's look on further. The next sons have a mixture of blessings, don't they? Verse 13, Zebulun shall dwell at the shore of the sea. He shall become a haven for ships, and his border shall be at Sidon. That sounds pretty good, doesn't it? A house with a sea view. How many people want to retire on the North Coast? I mean, some people even want to retire in Kilkeel. Isn't that right, John? Uh, and so, do you know, with a sea view, we love the sea view, don't we? We love the sea view. And so we think, what's, what's not to love here? And yet, we're told that they are bordering with Sidon. Why is that important? Well, Sidon is a pagan city. And it seems that they settle too close. They settled too close. We've seen that already in, in the story of Genesis, haven't we? Think about Lot. What happens when he gets too close to some wicked cities? Do you remember what happened? The sin that so easily entangles. Oh, yes, there were perks, but those perks came at great cost. Lots of young people here this evening. Be careful where you go. Be careful where you spend your time because some places are dangerous places that you might get too close and you might fall into sin that so easily entangles. Then there's Isaacar, strong as a donkey. I mean, that sounds pretty good, I think. Um, but it seems that his love for comfort and pleasure leads him to come under the control of someone else. And so there's a, a price to be paid for this comfortable way out, isn't there? So later we see this played out as they feel the drive out the Canaanites. 
out of the territory, and what happens? Well, they find themselves becoming forced labor. The comfort was enticing, but it had later ramifications. Well, in a day when comfort is clearly one of our idols, one of the idols of our age, I wonder if we need to dwell on this for a moment and try to consider whether this might be something that we're sliding into, comfort, all of the perks that come with it, and yet maybe not realizing what comes alongside it, the forced labor, as it were. Perhaps it's refusing to take a stand and work for right practice, because you know that the current practices bring in more money, and when more money comes in, you get better bonuses. And so the temptation is just to say nothing, just to say nothing. It's the comfortable option. You don't have to stand up against your boss. Maybe you don't have to stand up against most of the people in the workplace, because they may be happy enough. And yet, what happens is you sear your conscience, don't you? You sear your conscience, and in doing so, you actually lose the reputation of a man or woman of integrity. Perhaps as parents, buying into the, the big house, big car, fancy holiday, it is a must culture. Perhaps forcing both parents to spend huge amounts of time devoted to their career and to work life to the point where they are rarely at home. And oh yes, the income is great. The children lack for nothing materially. They have everything that they ever ask for and everything they ask for, they get. In terms of comfort, everything's there. But surely the yoke is that your children end up being discipled by the world and whoever's working down at the child care session that day, rather than with the responsibility of the parents. I wonder, do you see that the warnings in a, in a culture where we love comfort? Can you think of how this applies to you? Is there a, is there a comfort that is so gripping you that well, you're not seeing what it comes with? You're not seeing what it comes with. You know, we move on to the children born to the handmaids. So we've got Dan, verse 19. Dan shall judge his people as, as one of the tribes of Israel. Dan shall be a serpent in the way, a viper by the path that bites the horse's heel so that the rider falls back. Well, the viper's small, isn't it? Attacking the, the rider of the horse who seems like the obvious one who would have, who would have won. I wonder, can you imagine who's going to come from, from this tribe? Think of Samson. Didn't look like a, a warrior, someone impressive, and yet what would happen? Well, he would defeat whole armies, wouldn't he? And so we can see how this works out. Verse 18. Now, verse 18 is a strange one, isn't it? I wonder, were you surprised when you heard verse 18 the first time through? I wait for your salvation, O Lord. Seems strange. Here he is listing the blessings to son after son after son. And here he seems to switch course and break off for a time of prayer. And so I wonder as he pronounces the blessings of his sons, is there a sense in which he is just reminded reminded how much he needs God's saving power and rescue. As he looks forward to all that will come to pass for his family, is there just a sense in which, 
All he can do is surrender himself and his family to the Lord who saves. Then there's the the blessings for Gad and Asher and Natalie. They're they're short and they're fast-paced, and we're not just going to take time to unpack them this evening. But then we get the Rachel's two children, Joseph, Joseph and Benjamin. And once again, I want you to spot the length of, of the blessing that is pronounced upon Joseph. Starts at verse 20, 22. Do you see where it finishes? Right at the end of verse 26. Again, a huge big chunk, isn't it? And we don't have time to work through it verse by verse. But I want us to look at some of the imagery that's painted for us, that's sketched for us this evening. And Joseph is a fruitful bow by a spring, and the branches run over the wall. He brings great blessing, doesn't he? But he also comes under bitter attack. Did you spot that? He's harassed, and yet he remains unmoved. Not because of his own strength, but because of the strength of the mighty one of Jacob, God Almighty. God had sustained him. Now think back to what we already know of Joseph's life. He was sold into slavery. He was attacked by, by, by uh, Potiphar's wife. And yet, what happened in that scenario? He remained a man of integrity, didn't he? Because God was with him. Because God was with him. Didn't the text in Genesis 39 repeat that again and again? God was with him. And skim verses 26 and 27. Here's a question. What word comes up again and again and again? Verses 25 and 26. blessings, isn't it? It comes up again and again and again. Blessings after blessing after blessing. And in a sense, as we look back at what we already know of Joseph's life, we've seen this already, haven't we? We've seen, even though he has gone through great hardship and affliction, that he has brought about great blessing to God's people and beyond. And beyond. Think of Pharaoh and all the blessing that came his way as a result of having this man in his employment. As I was reading earlier this week, one of the commentators said this. He said, everything that is said of Joseph can be said of Jesus. Everything that is said of Joseph can be said of Jesus. He too was afflicted, wasn't he? And yet, despite his suffering, he works through it and brings great and fruitful blessing. Blessing upon blessing upon blessing. Yes, Jesus will come from the line of Judah. We know that, okay? He is the great lion of Judah. But in Genesis, Joseph is also very much a type of Christ. He foreshadows Christ. And as we look at Joseph's life, there are so many aspects that point us forward to the life of Christ. Little foreshadows that tell us, look out for Jesus. Look out for Jesus. Well, finally, as we get to the end of the the sons receiving the the blessings, we get to Benjamin, verse 27. He's pictured as a ravenous wolf. And as you think about that, you think about what you know from the Bible, I mean, it's not an an entirely good thing, surely. Um, But it certainly points to the fact that he has great military exploits. Both Saul and Jonathan would come from the tribe of Benjamin. Then look at verse 28. All these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with a blessing suitable to him. And so as we come to the end of the chapter, we also see that Jacob reminds them again, just in case they forget where he wants to be buried, the land of Canaan, 
the promised land, along with his forefathers. Verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed. He breathed his last and was gathered to his people. It's the end of the days of Jacob, isn't it? The end of the days of Jacob. But even in the way that the writer finishes up the chapter, he reminds us that this is not the end of Jacob. (laughs) The end of the days of Jacob, but it's not the end of Jacob. No, he was gathered to his people. His soul would be reunited with the souls of God's people who had gone before him. Death is not the end for this man. I want us to see that again. Death will not be the end for us either. And we must be ready. Must be ready. And so as we picture this family portrait, as we picture this family portrait with the 12 sons sketched out for us in our minds this evening, after hearing these blessings pronounced on each one, what do we do with it? What do we do with it? Well, maybe there is a few sneaky points. (laughs) One is, it gives us hope, doesn't it? It gives us hope. This is a family whose stories are messy, aren't they? Some of them have got themselves involved in the most wicked of sinful acts, ones that would mark the rest of their lives. For some of their decisions, it impacted the lives of future generations with devastating consequences. For some, they seem to lose much of what they had expected to gain in this life. And yet, here they are. Here they are listed in the family of God, the people of Israel, So doesn't it give us hope? Gives me hope, does it give you hope this evening? That God could take us with our sinful past, our failures, our sinful decisions, maybe ones that really will impact generations to come as well. God could take us and God could save us and God could rescue us from our sin. And so it is the Lord that we put our hope in, isn't it? For he alone can bring about our salvation. We echo that prayer that Jacob prayed halfway through, don't we? And not only that, he can actually redeem every situation in our lives, working all things together for the good of those who love him. Isn't that a wonderful thought? With all those sinful, sinful messes that we get ourselves in, God can actually redeem them. He can redeem them. But don't these blessings that are pronounced upon the sons also also work as warnings to us this evening? Warnings as to how not to live. Or the flip side, the positive examples of what it would look like to image Christ in our time and in our place. But it's also a passage that gives us clarity. I want us to see that as we get to the end. It's a passage that gives us clarity. As as those reading it now, we can see the messianic prophecy, can't we? We can see it clearly. We can see those little bits of the text that are foreshadows of Jesus. We can see that the king who, who washes his robes in wine and we know who it is, we know, we know it's Jesus, isn't it? Isn't that one of the reasons that the very first miracle that Jesus performs, we already looked at it in John's Gospel, last time we were in the John section, what is it? Well, it's water into wine, isn't it? And here he is, and he can make wine, make wine as abundant as water in that miracle. That's what he does, isn't it? Wine as abundant as water, and And surely it's not by accident that the water that has turned into wine is held in in jars that is used for purification, jars used for washing. I wonder 
I wonder as Jesus did that miracle, were we supposed to think back to Genesis? I'm starting to feel like Mark Hall now. <laughs> were we supposed to think back to Genesis and to pick up on the image given of the blessing to Judah? Do you think he wanted those who, who heard of the miracle to say, this is the king that we've been looking for? The king who was prophesied all those years ago. See, this is a passage that gives us clarity, isn't it? It tells us this is the one you're looking for, Jesus. And each of us here will one day stand before this very king on that day of judgment. And like the sons of Jacob, our only hope will be, our only hope will be that our sins have been forgiven. Our only hope is that we will have been washed clean. Washed clean. And this washing of our hearts can, can only take place not with, not with a bath full of red wine, not anything that we can get our hands on here and now, but washed by the blood of Jesus. Washed by the blood of Jesus and by trusting in what Jesus has achieved for us on the cross. You see, our hope this evening is that each of us will leave here. Each of us will leave here trusting in Jesus and what he has done on the cross, trusting that his blood has washed us clean so that we have that eternal hope, the hope of a new creation, the lavish, bountiful feast that lies ahead. So as we get to the end of chapter 49, what do we see? We see that we've got to the end of the days of Jacob. But as we get to the end of his days, I want you to look at the picture, look at the family portrait, and go over it again and again and again. Because surely this is a family portrait, a family picture which helps us live today and gives us great certainty of what's to come. Let's pray. Father, we are thankful for the picture that's painted, that's sketched out for us in Genesis 49. A picture of your people, a sinful people that are saved and rescued, but also points us to what's to come. It points us to the new creation to the new creation for all who are trusting in Christ Jesus, who have sought forgiveness in his name. Lord, that is our hope. We know that like Jacob, one day will come when we too will die. Might each one of us be found trusting in our Savior, Jesus Christ, the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.